you know, what I want to know is, is how, how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. I continued working really, really long days. I had so much guilt around leaving my little dog at the house out there in the middle of nowhere. And he would be waiting on me at night in the bay window. And it was the saddest thing in the world because I would leave early and I wouldn't get home until after dark. And there was just a lot of guilt. Poor little Burr Haney was just there waiting. You know, they just wait on you to come back. And I had a lot of heartbreak inside of myself every time I saw that little dog in that bay window. But I continued on this work quest and I continued renovating this house and it was sort of overwhelming. There was just a lot and I just had taken on this project and I was also still working on furniture pieces and Susie and I were still friends and we'd kind of talked about doing maybe some sort of antique show out at my house. And I had a client down in Midtown and she owned a, a uh, antique place in Vermont, Woodstock, Vermont. And I really liked her and she gave me some advice one day and she said, Jill, presentation is everything. And because I was telling her, I said, I really, I have this daydream about having like a shop, you know, or having, and she said, you don't need a shop. You know, and she just told me, she said, just stick a sign out and have an arrow point antiques, you know, and have it at your house. And so she'd given me some advice and I'd talk to Susie about maybe we could just have some show or something. So that was kind of in the works. So I continued working on some pieces and my mother had come out to visit me one weekend. And now that I had this house, you know, they were a little bit intrigued by it. And she came to spend the weekend with me and and so one night, you know, I had bought this uh, futon bed and put it over in the loft side of the uh, other side of the loft because I lived in a bedroom upstairs while I was working on the downstairs. So I set my mom up on this bed and it was kind of out in the open. You know, there was a huge railing uh, in this loft that you could look downstairs and the fireplace came up all the way through the cathedral ceiling. 
So she was going to sleep on this this futon bed over on the other side of the loft, and then I, you know, slept in my bedroom. And so I said goodnight and went on to bed, and the next morning I got up, and I opened my bedroom door, and my mom was sitting on the edge of the futon bed with her face in her hands. And she was crying. And I said, Mama, what's wrong? And I walked over real kind of slow because I didn't know what was going on. And she was just having like a meltdown. And my mom's not one to have like a meltdown, okay? And I said, what is it? What's wrong? And she said, you, you just, you won't believe this. You're not going to believe this. If I, I don't even think I can tell you this. And I said, what? And I started getting kind of scared. I didn't know what was going on. And she said, well, Jill, I, I woke up around 4, 4.30. You know, and I went downstairs to go to the restroom. And, you know, she said, I'd, she said she'd been waking up a lot, you know, I guess she was 63 by now, somewhere in that range. And she would wake up early in the mornings and not be able to go back to sleep. And she said, well, I didn't want to wake you up. So I just came on back upstairs and decided to lay here. And she said, as I was laying here, she said, I felt a presence hover over me. And she said, you're going to think I'm crazy. You're going to think I'm crazy. I said, no, I don't. Just tell me. She said, it hovered over me. And it was as if a, a some sort of figure, some sort of entity, reached down into my chest and pulled me up and levitated me across to your bedroom door. She said, I was awake, I'm telling you. Now, my mother is Southern Baptist, okay? She don't make shit up. Like, this kind of thing is not in her realm. She said it was a figure, and it had a, it had a veil over its face. And she said, when this figure got me to your bedroom door it was pointing to your bedroom door and the veil came off and it was mother and so it was my grandmother the one that I supposedly have kept earthbound by Janice the lady in New Mexico told me well my mother was petrified she said you can't tell anybody about this They'll think I'm crazy. They'll have me locked up. And I said, look, I know that there's something here. And I told her about the China cup. I said, I know that there's something here in this house. I don't doubt it at all. And it was pretty freaky. And she really shook her up. And, you know, she got her composure and went on home that afternoon well, my week started, you know, and it was pretty cold outside. And I had uh, been putting a towel under my door jam because, you know, I was trying to block out some of the cold draft that would come into that bedroom. And 
I remember leaving one morning. I opened my bedroom door, and when I opened the door, you know, I kicked that towel over under this farm table that had my computer on it, which was outside of the bedroom door. And I just remember thinking, I'll just deal with that later. I have a little OCD, so I don't like to leave a mess when I leave my house. I like things to be in order, so when I come back home, it's not disorganized because it always feels overwhelming. I think when you have so much on your plate, or for me, I had so much work on my plate that I I tried to keep some sort of element of control because I felt so out of control with so much work and so many projects. I went to work that day and I remember coming home and it was really cold that night and I was exhausted. And I remember standing at my kitchen counter having chips and salsa for dinner at like 10 p.m. And my poor little dog was just looking at me like, what the fuck? And I just was listening to my voicemails. And back then, you know, you had your voicemail, you had to check and it would just be like this long list of people calling for landscape work. And I had already taken my therapy lady's suggestion about just leave a voicemail that says that you are you have a waiting list. Well, it didn't matter. The people kept calling and I would say, okay, I can gladly put you on a waiting list, but I can't take on any more work right now. But I remember that night I went up the steps I had my little dog, and I was really, I just felt defeated. I felt like, why am I such a machine? Why do I operate in this way? And it's like, do I just, am I addicted to the numbness of this? There's something about this work that really numbs the body, numbs you out to a point of where you can't really worry. It's sort of like a a physical antidepressant, I guess. I came up the steps and I walked past the computer table and I saw that towel up under the the desk. And you know how when you'd roll up a towel to smoke a joint in college and stick it under the door, it was kind of like that, but it was kind of kicked over, you know, it was kind of wadded up. And I looked at it and I thought, you know what, I can't even bend down to pick that towel up. So I went into my bedroom I shut the door and I locked it and I took a shower. I had a bathroom in in my bedroom and I went ahead and went to bed. Next morning I get up and take another shower and get ready. I have to shower to wake myself up because I was exhausted. And when I opened my door into the bedroom, right at the door jamb was that towel rolled up perfectly outside of my door as if someone had put it there. And I about flipped out. I shut the door and I locked the door. And I went over and I had a machete under my bed. I grabbed the machete. I came back and I was petrified. I called the, first I called my mother. And I told her, I said, there's a there's a towel under my door. I, 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 I don't know what to do. And, and I started flipping out and freaking out about it because she had just had this encounter. And I was scared. And she said, just call the police. So I called 911. 
And I said, I think I've had a break in because all I could think was that someone had gotten in and maybe put that towel there as a sound buffer. Well, I opened the door because I thought, okay, just just take the machete and go for it. Opened the door back up. I went out with the machete, holding the machete kind of over my right ear up in the air. Kind of like you hold a baseball bat. And I'm like, motherfucker, wherever you are, I'm coming after you. And so I just stormed through that house. I went to every room. I just let my adrenaline take me. I was swinging to the room with a machete, look around. I went through the entire house. The house was 5,000 square feet, including the basement, which I was working on. And, and I went everywhere. There was not a window open. There wasn't a door open. There was no kind of entry into that house. Well, police show up and they come out, sheriff, you know, and they're kind of these country police. And I told them what had happened and they walked around, they looked, they don't see anything. There was not one sign of any kind of entrance into that house. Well, all I could figure was that you know, maybe my grandmother's trying to keep me warm. I just don't know. And I'm really starting to think about, is this house haunted? Apparently. Well, anyway, following week or so, Lisa Labalita called and we were going to get together. So she was going to come out to my house because she'd never seen it. And she had kind of an older Mazda car, and she came to the house, and her car broke down at my house. And we were kind of laughing about it. And I said, well, I guess this could be the haunted house made your car break down. I don't know. I guess you'll just have to go work with me on Monday. And she looked at me, and she goes, I will. I can. And I said, oh, I said, you don't want to do that. She goes, yeah, I, I can do that. I'll do it. She goes, I'm ready to make a change. I go, you don't want to do it. She goes, yeah, I do. I think it'd be fun. And I was like, no, that would be ridiculous. And I didn't think Lisa Labolita really could do that kind of physical labor. And, you know, she seemed to have had kind of a easier work life. I don't know. I was just, she had, she had invested in some properties and she'd had this boyfriend that worked at Morton, Morton Steakhouse. And I think they'd been together around 10 years by this point and it wasn't going real great. And so I think they were pretty much on the verge and maybe it already separated. I'm not sure, but so anyway, she decided uh, we would get her some clothes and that she could go to work with me and, okay, let's just see how it goes because I thought this was going to last a millisecond. And the first day, I remember being down at this in this gated kind of neighborhood and not really gated, but it was one of these like sort of like Atlanta Country Club kind of neighborhoods and I took care of all their tennis courts and all the common grounds and their entrance to the place. And I had a contract for the year on several neighborhoods like that. And I told Lisa Labolita, I said, now bring your lunch because you're going to get hungry. She goes, I don't really eat that much. And, oh, don't worry about it. And so the day she shows up, the first day, she was wearing all white, you know, 
and I was laughing, like, I can't believe you're wearing all white, but okay. And then it was probably maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. I look up at my truck. She's sitting, hanging out of my truck with my cooler, eating my banana and my yogurt and laughing. And I was like, oh, Jesus, like she didn't bring her lunch. And so I was like, come on, you can't be eating my food. We got it kind of a laugh out of it. Well, anyway, we went on this little journey of working together. And and I was so afraid because I didn't want to mess it up. I didn't want to mess up our friendship. And it's very hard sometimes because I'm a very controlling person. And I knew that about myself. When it came to work, I'm just very controlling. I know how it has to be done. There's it's business and I just, you know, I don't have time for chit chat and to discuss things and process things. And Lisa Labolita wasn't a huge processor. She was very funny. And so we had a really fun connection. And what was interesting was it was very empowering for these well-to-do yuppies in these neighborhoods, these kind of new money type. Uh, East Cobb houses with these housewives and the soccer moms driving their fucking Hummers and their Land Rovers because they might encounter a piece of gravel. But, you know, they would see us out there. And I think there was a lot of intrigue because you didn't see women landscapers. Not many. There were a few that would do the flowers, but not like the hardcore, all the machinery, the trailer, the whole rig. And I had this one client, and she was married to a heart surgeon, and she was very braggy, and she always bragged about their house in Aspen, and their different houses, and but she was always out there all up in our business about her, you know, talking about the yard. She had this little tiny postage stamp. It wasn't a really big property, but one day she came out, and and she had gotten me tickets to the Olympics and I actually had gone and I always felt a little bit strange around her and her husband because he was kind of a dickhead and I don't know, it was a weird situation and I could not figure out what her connection to me was. But anyway, this one day she came out and Lisa and I were out in the yard, you know, either changing out some some flowers. I'm not sure what we were doing, but she came out and she said, uh, I want to do something over in this area. I'm thinking, you know, it might be, a, it's kind of a dead zone. Maybe we could do some things. Lisa, what do you think? And I remember watching Lisa and she looked at me like, what do I say? And I just kind of made some body language like, go ahead, say something. And so Lisa walks over there and says, well, I think if you put like some hostas in here and maybe a couple of boulders and some ferns, make it real natural. And it was so interesting to watch this woman listen to Lisa because Lisa was really pretty. Lisa's the kind of girl that women hate. You know, it's that kind of fucking weird cat fight competition energy bullshit that I've never understood because I'm not, I don't. I've never been in that category. And I watched them because this woman was blonde and blue-eyed and, you know, and hired out everything. And I think it was empowering for Lisa to step over and to say, I think this would look good and have this opinion. 
When we got in the truck to drive off that evening, and Lisa looked over at me, and she said, I can't believe she asked me. And I said, why? I don't know. I mean, I just can't believe she asked me what I thought. And I thought about this situation, and I thought, you know what? This landscaping job is going to do something for Lisa Labolita that has nothing to do with me. Once again, I might be a catalyst. I don't know. But we went on this journey together, and I watched Lisa start landscaping her own properties. And she, she, just, she got interested. She learned how to prune. And so we continued our friendship and working together. And it was amazing to watch her kind of step into her power. And some time, pretty long time had gone by. And I'll never forget this one day. She was up in this Japanese maple. She was pruning it. She had her pruner holster on her side. She'd finally gotten her some decent work clothes. And she had on these dark safety glasses. And she was pruning in this tree. Now, not anybody can prune a fucking Japanese maple, okay? And I would not never trust anybody to do it. But I trusted her to do it because I'd been watching her and she was good at it. And she looked down at me in this silent moment and she said, I know what I'm going to do. And I said, what? What do you mean, what are you going to do? She goes, I know what I'm going to do for a living. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my own real estate company. I said, really? She goes, yeah, because I got a great personality and I can sell anything. And I love houses. And she said, I think I might even go commercial. And here's the thing. Lisa LaBelita wasn't afraid. She wasn't like a fucking scaredy cat like me about life. She had so much thought possibility. Nothing kept her from trying something new. I mean, I really felt like I was a risk taker early on in my life, but I'd gotten very rigid and I'd gotten disappointed many times in my life. And I and I had made so many bad or not great decisions and these choices and these consequences. I was sick of it. And sometimes that freezes you. Sometimes it puts you in a position to just be paralyzed and I watched Lisa Labolita make a decision, and that was a divine moment. I saw it happen. And I was so grateful that I was there to witness that. Well, life went on, and this morning, I remember this one morning, my mom decided to move in with me, or I, you know, we talked about it, and my mother was retiring, and I said, well, why don't you just come stay with me? Not like live with me, but just stay with me until you figure out what it is you want to do. She had sold the house that we grew up in, and now she was going to retire. And I said, just let go of the place she was uh, renting. She sold a condo, actually. And I said, just come, come live here. Now, my sister moved to North Carolina, and I said, it'll just be a landing pad but ultimately, my goal was to try to mend the relationship with my mother. We had had a turbulent, turbulent relationship for all these years. 
even in sobriety, it was very hard. I was, my mom was very critical of me. I was never going to measure up to what she wanted. And I just suffered in pain from this because I saw other people. I saw Lisa LaBelita and Gail have like a great mother-daughter relationship. And Gail had been a bad alcoholic. And Lisa had trauma, but it wasn't like ruling their relationship. So I invited my mother to come and I gave her the master bedroom that was going to be my bedroom if I was ever going to move out of the loft. And I'd had these gorgeous heart of pine floors put in, these big 12-inch wide planks in this log house and had these floors installed with brass screws so it wouldn't squeak. And it was just this beautiful floor. And so she moved into the bedroom and the master bath and all that. And so I was really trying to help my mom to have some ease and some comfort because my mother had quite a history herself. She had her own trauma. She had her own nightmare childhood. She had a lot of stuff and my mother didn't know how to deal with it. She never really knew how except to work hard and to stay busy and busyness was her drug of choice and I inherited that and I knew that I came by it honest but seeing my mom be there, and also she was there to take care of my little dog. I was very grateful to have her there. And Burr Haney was very happy because she would make him his own little cornbread skillet that was hilarious. And I'm like, don't make him so fat. But, you know, it didn't matter. And my mother was laughing because I had gone from, you know, living on Bernie Street without an oven, without a stove for eight years and she said, God, you went from a rattle, like buying a rattle trap car to a Mercedes. What in the world? And I bought this like killer Thermador oven. And, you know, that was the thing is like I had been working so hard for so long and I really wanted to to make this house something that was special. And I, I felt like I had, you know, earned my keep, so to speak. But so my mom came and was there and that was kind of rocking along. I'll never forget one morning really early, my phone rang like way too early. Like who in the hell's calling at this hour? And I said, hello. I kept the phone right beside my bed and I answered it really quick. I was like, hello. And it was Lisa Labolita and she was crying. I've never heard her cry ever. And she said, Jill. I said, what? What's wrong? What? She said, have you watched the news? And I said, no. And she said, Princess Diana's died. And I went, what? Princess Diana has been in a car wreck and she died. And I just I sat up in my bed. I turned the lamp on. I said, what are you talking about? And she went on to tell me what she knew or what she had already heard. And, and it was so weird. And Lisa LaBelita kind of had a little obsession with Princess Diana. I always kept a can of Altoids, a can, you know, one of the canister or whatever of Altoid mints in my truck. And I remember one day her opening the mints and getting one. And it, it, they on the can it says made in the UK. And I remember her looking and said, do you think Princess Diana eats these? And I, we had a big laugh about that. And we always laughed about it. And that's all I could think of was like, what is this thing about Princess Diana? 
And so the next several days was really strange, you know, because we worked and it was this kind of strange thing happening, not only between us and my mother at the house, but in the world. And we watched this thing unfold on TV and this shift of consciousness that was happening on this planet because of this one particular woman. And we talked about it a lot. Like, what is it that created such a grief-stricken experience for so many people? Was it the fact that Princess Diana was, you know, sort of a black sheep? Like, and I didn't really know a lot of history. I mean, I saw the tabloids and I listened half-assed to the news, but I wasn't that informed about Princess Diana and where she was from and what she had gone through. And I had seen one of the interviews about her bulimia and things like that, but there was something that struck a chord in so many people, and especially Lisa Labolita. And I remember my heart sort of just breaking for that. And I think Princess Diana gave so many people hope, just kind of, even though, you know, she was from a very wealthy background, it wasn't like she was some poor sad sack that, you know, she was privileged. But maybe because she took a stand you know, maybe because she finally took a stand in her life and it was almost as though her life had just started when it was taken. And I kept thinking about what it is to take a stand in this world, to take a stand for, for yourself, to show up for yourself. What would it really be like if you just showed up up for yourself for the first time in your fucking life. And so Lisa Labolita and I continued our work relationship and then we would go out to these weird bars. And we were we didn't drink. I didn't drink. She didn't drink. She's not alcoholic, but she could still have a few drinks. It wasn't a big deal. But I remember at Halloween one night we were going to go to this weird S&M club and it was called the chamber and she wore a black latex dress and a black mask like Catwoman. That was who she was going as. And I just wore, you know, a cat in a hat hat. That was it. <laughs> Levi's. Woo. I was going to be in the cat in the hat. Well, we went to this, uh, this club and it was, really a weird place, but it was so fun. And I guess there's some kind of intrigue in the dark side. I still don't understand a lot of that about myself, but I've sort of learned to embrace that part and not be so scared of it. But we went and it was Halloween and all the freaks were really out and we danced until about four in the morning and just really had a fun time. And and I just appreciated her friendship so much. And I truly, truly loved her as a human being. Her presence and her being really influenced me in my life. And she doesn't even know that really. But we had some really fun times during those the later part of the 90s. Well, 
it was time to buckle down with this new therapy group. And I had gone to the sessions every Monday for a while. And I would sit quietly and kind of speculate or try to figure out what's going on. Because my MO is like, okay, I got to figure this out before I participate. Sometimes I feel like I'm a spy. I feel like I have to just, you know, watch and listen because I want to, I want to be like you. I want to make sure and say the right thing and do the right thing and be the right way. And that is just bullshit. There is no right or wrong way when you're trying to dig into your fucking psyche. Well, I would sit week after week and therapy lady was starting to, I, I could tell she was getting a little bit agitated with me. Like, when are you going to participate? And the way that this group worked is that she would ring this kind of Tibetan bowl and everybody'd sit there and get all grounded and you'd close your eyes and take some breaths and then we would sit in silence and then she would never call on anybody. It was up to you to say, I want to work. I want to work. Well, there was this one particular person and she would always be the first one out of the gate I work and I'm like oh god and bless her heart she was just very broken and all these women were like corporate women like there were some high-powered freaking women in this group like corporate attorneys and doctors and important people you know and then there's me and I would wear my work clothes because I would have to come from work. And I just felt very judged. And they weren't judging me. But I felt that way, of course, because that's the way that I walk on this earth. And so week after week, I would listen to all of their tales, you know, their check-ins. And they would check in. And I started figuring out, you know, you have to check in and be real about what's really going on. And it can't be like circumstantial. Therapy lady don't want you to sit there and tell a big old long story with a bunch of circumstances. It's like we got to get to the heart of the matter here. We've only got three hours, which is a lot of time, but not really. And so they would do these check-ins, you know, go around the room and you kind of tell where you're at. And I really had to learn how to do that. I didn't know how to do that. But I was trying to follow everyone's lead. And so therapy lady pulled me to the side one night after the whole group. And she said, look, I really invite you to try to, you know, try to go out with these gals after after group one night. They would always go to this Italian restaurant when group ended at nine o'clock. And it was down the street, and it was this quaint little place, and they had like out, outdoor dining, and they'd sit outside under these cool lights. And, and they always asked me if I wanted to come, and I'd be like, no, no, i got to get home. And I just, you know, and my mom was there, so my mother was taking care of my dog, but I just, I didn't want to do it. You know, I didn't want to have to go and be with these women. And, you know, they were all wearing their corporate suits and heels and all that and I would be like no it's okay and so I just kept avoiding and avoiding avoiding and so finally you know therapy ladies like why do you live out in the middle of nowhere 
you need to get some friends, Jill. You need to do something besides just work. And this was an ongoing sort of problem. And so finally, I came in and they did the check-in. And I remember saying, I was invited to go to a play by this ex-girlfriend who was Susie. And I really didn't want to go to the play by myself, you know, and I voiced this in my check-in. This was my big dilemma, right? Because I couldn't think of anything. Like, I don't know, I just don't even know how to do it. But I said, I don't want to go by myself. And I just wish that I had someone to go with me. And, you know, and I just kind of laid it out. So I decided that I would go to dinner with the ladies, the women, after the group. And so there was this one particular person in the group who was the youngest one in the group. And she had about five years of sobriety. And she was very funny and very animated and very kind of loud and really passionate and very honest and just really, you know, kind of a larger than life personality. And we went to dinner, and she was like, oh, sit by me, come sit by me, come sit by me. And she was very cute. She kind of reminded me of like a cross of like Kate Winslet and Drew Barrymore with kind of freckles. She's pretty and funny and young. She was 36. No, she was 26, and I was 36. Ten-year difference. And... So we sat at the table and all the women are wanting to know all about this play that I'm going to because, you know, this is my first time to the dinner and they were all trying to like overcompensate to make me feel comfortable, which was fucking driving me crazy. But anyway, we sat and, you know, I just barely ever talked. They didn't know me at all. And so this girl at the end of the table, her name was Elizabeth, and she said, we were driving back to the to the wellness center. She said, "I'll go. I'll go with you to the play. I, I, I would love to go. I love theater. I'll go with you." I'm like, "Really? You want to go? Really?" She goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." And so we emailed back and forth during the week, and she emailed me her address. And so it was Saturday, and it was time to go, and I was going to go pick her up. She said, "Why don't uh, you drive, or just come to my house, and I'll drive." I said, "Okay." And I really, really, really went into this with a total, I'm going to a play with a friend. And that's what therapy lady wanted me to do was start participating. So I really had this willingness to do this. And that's why I was doing it. I, hell, I didn't, even, I didn't even really want to go to the play. I did, but I didn't. I mean, my tendency is to just forget about it and stay home and work on something. And that's fine. Well, I went to this girl's house, and she owned her own home, which I found interesting, because most 26-year-olds don't own a house, but she had this nice little house and this nice little neighborhood, and I pull up to the driveway, and I get out, and I go to the door, and I knock on the door, and when she opened the door, she was very dressed up, and she was wearing a short skirt, and she had a poodle under her arm, this little apricot poodle precious and she said this is henry henry johnson i went oh and i laughed and she invited me in 
in that opening of the door, right when I saw her, this energy shifted. And it was like, okay, this feels more like date energy. This doesn't feel like just going to a play with a friend. And I was like, oh, no. Is this what I think it is? Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates. <laughs>